Proverbs chapter 4. For the last three weeks, we have been um, studying God's Word to get a very clear picture, a very clear understanding of what it looks like when a disciple of Jesus Christ is completely sold out, completely surrendered, completely given to Him. When, when a disciple is showing love for the Lord in every single area of their life. Now, by definition, that's what a disciple should do. But we know from our own humanity and from our experience that it's not always how we live. So we are setting a, a bar. We're setting a biblical standard here that shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. This shouldn't be really breaking new ground for us. But many times we need to be reminded of how good we have it that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, right? That, that how good we have it that we're adopted as, as his children and that we're saved and redeemed and rescued and cleansed and adopted. That, that's an amazing fact. So what does it look like when we are completely given to him and we're completely sold out to him? We're calling this living vertically. Living vertically. That everything in our lives, every thought, every action, every attitude would all be directed away from self and directed to the praise and glory of God. We should reflect Him. We should be the representation of Christ on earth because that's we're filled with His Spirit. We're given His likeness. We have His Word. We're part of His body. We have His Spirit indwelling and teaching and guiding us, so we should represent Him well. And when we do that, it provides unmistakable proof to anybody that sees us that we're his disciples. And it strengthens our witness and it strengthens our ability to reach people for Christ. Now, we saw three weeks ago that this starts with the strength of our personal altar. And our altar is what we sacrifice to the Lord. You remember Romans 12 says that we're a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So everything in our life is to be surrendered. Everything is to be sacrificed. And if our altar is strong and built up and, and, and part of uh, every aspect of our lives, then we'll represent Christ well. But if it's broken down and torn apart and there are other gods on it, like there was in the time of Elijah, then our relationship with the Lord will not only be fractured and unhealthy, but our witness will be absolutely weak. So it all starts with the altar. Now flowing out of the altar, once the altar is right, then spiritual maturation starts to show up in other areas. And the first area we saw two weeks ago was an unrestrained worship. That our lives should pour out praise, not just singing in the service, that's part of it, but that everything in our life should pour out praise to God. And then as we get our altar right and we pour out our praise to God, then as we saw last week, the next step is that our prayer will be unceasing. That we'll go to the Lord with all our needs, that we'll praise Him in His presence, that we'll abide in His presence, that we'll hear from Him, that prayer will not be a weakness as it is for so many believers, that it will be not something that we neglect because we're insecure and we don't know what to say and we're not sure what to do, but that it will be an area of great strength. And I believe the Lord really challenged us on that last Sunday. I believe that showed up Thursday night in prayer meeting. We had a strong evening. The Spirit of God was here. We called out on the Lord for our nation. We called on the Lord for each other. And God's presence was manifest Thursday night. That needs to be true all the time. And we prayed that in prayer band this morning, that God's presence would be manifest this morning. Now, we started with three things that, that were directly focused on the Lord. 
every one of these things is all about our relationship with Christ, the altar and our worship and prayer. But this morning, uh, we, we are going to look at something that has more of an outward impact because when our altar is right, it will have an impact. When our worship and our prayer is right, people will see it, but we don't do it for them. The fourth, the third area, the fourth area, excuse me, that we're going to look at this morning really has more of an outward effect. And we're not doing it for show. We, we never want to present a, a, a presentation to people. We never want to be acting. That's the definition of the word hypocrite, that you have two masks. You remember the old masks in Greek, in Greek drama? One was sad and one was happy. That's what a hypocrite is. That's the meaning of it, the two masks that you wear two different faces. So we're not acting like Christians while we're here and going out and saying, well, look at me, I'm a Christian, but, but in, our, in our eternal life, that's not really how we live. That's not what we're trying to do here. But the effect of this area that we're going to study this morning has so much influence on the lives of other people. And if we're trying to reach people for Christ, we're trying to build each other up in the faith, we're trying to minister to people that are hurt and broken, we're trying to rescue the perishing, we're trying to grab people who already have one foot in hell and, and show them the love of Christ and talk about the gospel. When we are living this way, it will have that effect. So it is vitally important. But it is also going to be the greatest area of attack and the greatest area of temptation in our lives. The appeal of sin, the lure of the old self, the, the, the pull toward the past life, being conformed to the world, it never goes away. It's pervasive, it's insidious, it's subtle, it's high pressure, and it appeals to our humanity, and it appeals to our emotions, and it appeals to our selfish appetites. And not only do we have to, to admit honestly that we are tempted that way, but we have to be aware of it, and we have to be alert watching at every single turn to, to, to look at the different deceptive uh, ways that the enemy is, is trying to get at us. The enemy's never stopping in terms of trying to, to pull Christians away from God. Now, he can't steal our salvation. He can't rip us from the adoption of Christ. He can't say, I'm taking you back. Once we're Christ, we're Christ. But he can significantly damage our walk with Christ. So the Bible tells us that we have to walk circumspectly. In other words, we have to look all around us at all times for whatever is going to bite us and whatever is going to snare us. If I put you in, in, in a room, in a, in a 30 by 30 room, and it had animal traps all over it, and slithering in and out of the animal traps were deadly snakes, how would you get around? I promise you, you wouldn't just, you know, look at your phone. Oh, what's, what's on the internet right now? Let me just wander around this room for a while, right? Would you do that? We would go, all right, snakes are over there, traps are over there, I'm over here, this is good right now. If a snake starts to slither through, we'd have to walk very carefully, walk around, make sure we don't get ensnared. Every single step would be intentional. We would be constantly looking around us, making sure that we're not getting damaged. That's the meaning of what God tells us to do. Walk circumspectly. Don't be blind. Don't be distracted. Don't be focused on other things. Don't be careless. Don't be clueless. 
don't, don't be uh, uh, cautionless. I needed another C. I had to make up a word. Don't, 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 don't be without your full attention on what's going on. The enemy's trying to lay a trap for you. The enemy has a snare. He's firing his darts at you. And this is not just when you're in trial. This is 24-7, 365. So you, believer, have to walk very, very carefully. Now you have the armor of God you need to put on, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, and greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. So, so you're covered from my perspective. God says, I give you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. But you also have to utilize that. So if I give you the full armor of God and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith, and you don't use those, you just neglect them, well then, now you're out and the battle exposed. So are you going to use what I have? Start with your altar. Make sure that's strong. Make sure your worship is all directed toward me. Make sure you have a prayer life that is bold and confident. And when that happens, now we're going to move into this fourth area. Then your character will start to become spiritually uncompromising. Our character is so important. Think about all the celebrities, all the politicians, all the, all the questions about them, all the doubts about them because their character is not solid. And the Bible calls us to a character that is biblically uncompromising. So, so let's define the word first before we jump into Proverbs 4. What does it mean to compromise? I think the Lord gave me a definition this week. Compromise is the indication that a person's conviction is unstable. Compromise is the indication that a person's conviction is unstable and their integrity is negotiable. When our conviction isn't steady, isn't strong, isn't founded on the rock of the word, isn't centered on everything that this Bible says, with no other help, we just are going to live by the word of God. That's our rule of law. That's how we adapt. That's how we live. That's how we think. That's everything to us. If, if that is unstable and unsteady, and then our integrity becomes negotiable, which we'll talk about, then our character is compromised. And a disciple of Jesus Christ cannot, cannot, cannot be described that way. Someone who has been cleansed and given a new spiritual nature and indwelt by the Spirit of God and given the Word of God to live by, not to mention the jobs we have as ambassador and witness, that person who's been redeemed, recovered, cleansed, secured, adopted, and equipped and empowered and given a job, that person cannot have flexible spirituality. They can't have flexible spirituality. It can't be, well, it works in this situation and it doesn't work. It doesn't work around this person, but it does work around that person. And I'll be one person over here and I'll be another person over here. And I'll compromise in this area, but I won't compromise in this area. In fact, I'll be dogmatic about that, but I'll be very gracious about that. I'll be very lenient about this, but I'll yell at everybody about that. That's called flexible spirituality. I just created the term, and I like it because that's how a lot of people live. And there is nothing, there is nothing that will create greater doubt or greater skepticism among non-Christians about the reality of the gospel than someone who says they're a believer and lives a spiritually compromised life. 
It undercuts the proof of the new nature that Christ has given us. It undercuts the fact that our mind is renewed. It, it undercuts that, that our priorities are, are transformed, that we're continuing to live like we used to live, but we say that we're saved by Christ. And that leads people to wonder, well, why in the world would I renounce sin and submit my life to Christ if there's no discernible change? Why give myself fully to something that doesn't seem to create any difference? We see this in, in a small way in the political realm. So much of the disillusionment over this election is over the, the corrupt status quo. And listen, it's on both sides of the aisle. Career politicians are content to just get reelected. They don't really want to represent the people. They don't really want to, to, to help the nation advance. They just want to continue policies that don't work in order to continue to be in power. And that leads to a lack of trustworthiness, which is why this election is such a mess. And people say, well, wh nothing changes. Wh why would I vote for somebody if nothing's going to change? Now bring it spiritually. They look at us and they say, you profess to be a believer. You go to church. You take time on Sunday to go to church and serve and give and worship and, and, and be among the body. And yet when I look at your life, I don't really see it's drastically altered in any way. So why would I bother? See, the unmistakable distinguishing mark of trusting in Jesus Christ is that your life is radically transformed. It is no longer the same. Now, I say that as somebody that got saved at nine. I've been in church all my life. I don't think anybody's ever known me. I'm not bragging, okay? Please understand where I'm coming from. I don't think anybody's ever known me to not be a Christian. I don't have a wild past. I didn't do anything I'm really ashamed of in college. I mean, again, I'm not bragging here. I'm just saying that, that my life as somebody that was raised in the church and saved early still needs to show radical transformation from darkness to light. Because I have been redeemed, therefore, as somebody that's had that privilege and been saved for 42 years, my life should be off the charts in representing Christ. There should be no question, no moment, no word that somebody goes, ooh, that doesn't sound right. Everything should be aligned with Christ. Why? Because I'm under new ownership. Because God has taken me and he's made my heart and mind new. And he's not only declared me holy, but he's made me holy. And that's not against my will. God doesn't save you against your will. So, so we shouldn't be fighting it and resisting the change. We should say, praise the Lord, look at what he's done in my life. I am so eager to live for him. I am so eager to walk for him. I have zero regret and zero resentment. If anything, I regret that I lived all those years as an unbeliever and I resisted the grace of God. Now, God, you have redeemed me and you've saved me and I'm going to live for you with every fiber of my being. And on the flip side, presence in the work of the Holy Spirit gives us a bold and steadfast determination that we will not compromise our spiritual character, and we will not dishonor the Lord in any way. That's what Solomon's writing about. Look at the text. 
Proverbs 4. You say, that was a long introduction, but that was half the message, so don't worry about it. My son, verse 20, Proverbs 4.20, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the middle of your heart. For their life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flows the spring of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Now, Solomon wrote this at a time when his life and his wisdom was at its pinnacle. The Lord had given him unparalleled knowledge and insight, not just intellectually. He wasn't just a smart guy, but spiritually. He had a deep understanding of the Lord. He had seen it modeled in his father, David. He had learned it by watching the blessing of God on David's life and on on David's faithfulness. And now he had spiritual wisdom placed in his mind by God himself. So when he says here in the text, Give attention to my words and incline your ears to what I'm saying. Don't let it depart now. Don't don't let this go in one ear and out the other. And keep it in the middle of your heart. When he says that, it's just not overstated hyperbole. It is the reality that God has given me spiritual insight that I'm now sharing with you in this book of wisdom. And I need you to really listen. And notice in verse 22 that the Lord tells us just how important it is that we listen and just how important it is that we obey because these words we just left, uh, just read, they are literally life. They are literally life to those who find them. Now the great tragedy and the great lesson of Solomon's life is that he didn't obey his own words. He didn't keep listening to God's wisdom, and he didn't keep listening to God's instruction, and he did not watch over his heart with diligence. Instead, he compromised, and he had his heart drawn away to to a thousand foreign women, and he was tempted to make pleasure his priority, and they said, you should worship our false gods. Uh, They didn't say false gods, obviously, but they said, you should worship our gods. You You should integrate into our culture, Solomon, and Solomon's like, that looks really good, and you're really beautiful, and I like being with you. So, so yeah, I'll come to your, to your sanctuary, I'll come to your altar, and I'll worship your gods. Now, it's important to notice that God had very directly warned Solomon about this a few verses after the text we studied last week. Remember 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, A couple verses after that. Listen to what God tells Solomon. If you, notice the personal pronoun, if you, Solomon, Turn away and forsake my commandments, which I've set before you, and you go and serve other gods, and you worship them. Then I will uproot you from this land, which I've given you, and from this house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And when people ask why I've done this, I will say, because they forsook the Lord, and they adopted other gods, and worshiped and served them. What's God saying? He's saying, listen, when you compromise and you substitute anyone or anything for me, anything that is not God, 
is another God. You say, well, uh, come on, Paul. I just I like cars. I like the Packers. I like vacation. I like ha- that. That that becomes a priority to us. That becomes a God to us. And if that supersedes our relationship with the Lord, or if that damages our relationship with the Lord, then it's become a false God. So he says, Solomon, if you're going to do this, if you're going to compromise and you're going to substitute another God for you, then I'm going to tell you how I'm going to react. I'm not going to hesitate to discipline you to the point where I'm going to uproot your life. Because you're dishonoring me. That's how seriously the Lord takes the inconsistency of our walk. And we have to ask ourselves this morning, do you and I take it that seriously too? Because here in Proverbs 4, if you look back at it, the Holy Spirit gives very direct and very active instruction about how to fight compromise. And I want to be a little bit of an English nerd for the moment. I want you to look at the verbs. Because the verbs starting in verse 23, the the tone and the tense of them indicates just how urgently and how forcefully the Spirit of God is calling us to respond. So when you look at the verb starting in verse 23, you'll notice that they're all active and they're all imperative. In other words, the Holy Spirit's saying, this is critical. This is, this is a direct, specific directive from me to my disciples to be intentional about resisting spiritual appeasement. So look at what he says. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Put away your deceitful mouth. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Watch the path of your feet. That's walking circumspectly. Don't don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Turn your foot from evil. These are deliberate choices. And we have to decide how important they are to us. Because as believers, there is zero alternative to fighting compromise. We're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. Sometimes that that analogy is overhyped when a football player comes off the team. Man, we did war today. We're down in the trenches doing war. Listen, until you go to war, don't talk about war in Christian football games. But this is worse than Vietnam. This is worse than Iraq. This is worse than any conflict on the face of the earth. This is spiritual warfare, and we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers of darkness, and they want to eat us up. And if we don't resist and we don't fight and we don't put on the armor of God, we're going to get worn down and we're going to be lied to and worldliness is going to creep in and we're going to start to devalue the word of God and it's going to become irrelevant and we're going to point our fingers at other hypocrites without realizing that we're the biggest hypocrite of all. We have to resist this. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we resist the devil, tell me what happens. He flees from us. His influence will diminish. He won't appeal to us anymore. And I believe, let me talk quickly here, I believe there are three important areas in which this fight against compromise is very heightened. And I want to just touch on each one. They come really out of the text I'll give you some other verses you can write down and look at this week. But let me give you three areas this morning in which we have to very particularly and very intentionally 
fight against compromise. The first fight is against compromising our convictions. We have to fight the compromise of our convictions. Now, we've said it many times. The Church of Jesus Christ has not done a good job in the last 30 or 40 years defending the Word of God. It hasn't. I don't care what anybody says. I've read hundreds of articles. The church has not defended the Word of God. It's gotten soft on the Word of God. And instead of us as believers becoming more weak and more anemic, instead we have to ramp it up and start taking the graduate classes and saying, I'm going to study my Word. I'm going to learn the Bible. I'm going to learn theology. If you want an outline for theology, go on our website, harborrocktabernacle.org, go under what we believe, and there's a 14-point outline of theology that's straight from Scripture. Start learning it. Start reading those verses. There are like 10 verses for each point. Start researching that. Take one a day. I'm going to study the doctrine of God, and I'm going to look up all the verses, and I'm going to write down notes. Listen, you say, well, I don't have a lot of time, Paul, and I'm so busy. Really? How much are you on your phone? How much are you on your computer? How much are you watching TV? I'm not picking. I'm not trying to be a, a, a fundamentalist here or somebody. That's, I'm just saying, look, we can balance that time into our lives. We can. We can. You can take time to study 10 verses of Scripture and write out notes of them on what they mean. We need to learn theology. The average believer, I don't believe it's true here, but the average believer is so weak on theology. They couldn't describe the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of end times to save their life. So we have to be intentional about being strong in our convictions and about backing up what we believe and what we say with the word of God. If we can't back it up with scripture, it's just an opinion. You can talk all you want about politicians and whatever. Listen, if you can't back it up with scripture, you need to be quiet. So we need to get into the Word. We need to study the Word. We need to be students of the Word. Why? Because conviction is driven by truth. It's formed in the whole council of Scripture. And this is God's unfallible Word. God has graciously given us. We have how many copies in our, in our house? I've probably got 20 copies of the Bible in my house. You need a copy of the Bible? Right there on the table. Grab one on the way out. It's free. Take it. We have the infallible, inspired Word of God in our hands that tells us exactly how to live and gives us everything we need to understand God and understand to live by His ways. How dare we neglect it? We need to be strong in our conviction, strong in our understanding. We need to understand that this Word of God is profitable for our teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. And it will only be words unless we take it in with our whole heart. So we have to attack Scripture, we have to study it, we have to pray about it, we have to listen to Spirit, we have to take notes on it, we need to respect it and treat it with the value that it is. Don't just throw this in the car underneath a pile of stuff, under clothes, wrapped up, getting torn. Don't do that. This is the Word of God. This is precious. People have died for this. If you're ever in Orlando, go to the Holy Land Experience. They have a whole building. It's probably as big, maybe bigger than our building right here. And it's just called a scriptorium. And it has copies of the scripture from the time of Christ up to now. And there are a couple Bibles that have bloodstains on them where the person was martyred over the Bible. That'll change your perspective about your Bible. 
That won't just be, oh, you got your Bible? No, I don't have it. Or here, just throw it in the car. No, no, this is the word of God. It's precious. We will not respect the word of God unless we study it. And if we love other people and other things more, we're going to neglect the word. I want you to look later on at Daniel 1. You know it well. We studied it at family camp on day three. Remember in Daniel 1 when David's taken into captivity? And he and his three teenage friends, you know, we see pictures of Daniel in the lion's den. What's it like? He's an old man who's balding with a beard, right? Nope, Daniel was 15. He was a teenager. And he goes into Babylon, and they try to indoctrinate him, and they give him the finest clothes and put him in the palace and say, you're going to eat the king's food. We're going to change your names. We're going we're to make you Jews Babylonians because that was the Babylonian philosophy. If you can indoctrinate them into the culture, then they'd accept the culture, and then they'd be a, a strong army for you, a strong army of youth. So Daniel and his three teenage buddies go in there, and when they say, you're going to eat the king's food, Daniel knew that the food was offered to idols, and that was prohibited by the law. So Daniel says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You can change my name, that's fine, that's just, that's window dressing. You can give me different clothes, that's fine. You can even teach me different things. You know what, I'm going to filter everything through the word of God, so it doesn't really matter. But I'm telling you, you're not going to make me compromise my convictions. And he goes to the guard, and the guard could have killed him for this. The guard could have said, get out of here, you, you filthy slave. I'm gonna, you, you don't have any right to ask any favors of me. Daniel says, tell you what, that's a little challenge here, bud. Let, let us eat nothing but fruits and veg, uh, fruit, uh, vegetables and water for the next couple weeks. And you, you let all the other slaves do their thing and eat all the king's you know, pastries and, and meat and all that kind of thing. It's good. We, we don't need that because we can't eat that according to our religious beliefs. According to our conviction, we can't do that. So you let us eat vegetables and water. And, and after a couple weeks, you look at us. If we look anemic and it's obvious that we're, we're cheating, then, then you know what? We'll do whatever you want. And after a couple weeks, after Daniel takes this stand, a stand in isolation when everything was at risk, and if he failed, it would not only publicly be humiliating to him, but publicly humiliating to the Lord. You say, well, it's a minor issue. Come on, Paul, we've got to adapt a little bit to our culture. Don't, don't be so extreme. I'm not being extreme. I'm talking about the Word of God. The Word of God is extreme. A lot of people hate the Word of God this morning. They reject it. They reject Christ. Christ says they're going to hate you because you love me. It's not like we can just kind of slide by and say, well, it's good. You know, just, just kind of adapt, kind of fit in. It'll be good. Everybody just kind of accept me, and then I can influence people for Christ. No, you can't. No, you can't, and I can't either. It would have been easier to just compromise and give in, but that's the key to living vertically. The key to living vertically is we don't compromise biblical convictions and we don't give in when there's pressure and when people are critical and people are opposing us, not because we're forming some kind of spiritual militia, but because we are called to live by the word of God, no questions asked. And God will defend us and God will help us. So we have to ask, you and I have to ask ourselves this morning, do I hold biblical convictions. Do I believe the Bible and say I love the Bible but I never study it? And then when it comes time 
when it commands me to do something, I kind of nuance it. Do I claim I have convictions about sin and become very, very strong and forceful about that, but, but my kids are seeing me compromise, and they're starting to do the same things, and now I'm uptight with them because they're compromising, but where do they learn it? They learned it from me. Are we honest until dishonesty saves us a little money? Are we truthful until it's going to threaten a relationship or it's going to put us in an awkward position as it works so we're just going to bend the truth a little bit because God will understand? No, that's not how it works. Adam compromised. Saul compromised the anointing of God. Samson compromised his vow and God's secret. David compromised his purity. Peter, Peter contrived, uh, compromised his convictions and his courage. Ananias compromised the truth. We have to fight that. We have to fight compromise of our convictions. Because if we don't, quickly, the second area of compromise will be our integrity. Our integrity. Proverbs 22, Ron, write it down. You can look at it later. It says, a good name is more valuable than great riches. Proverbs 28, 6 says, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who's crooked in his ways. Listen, we've seen so many examples, so many examples of corruption and people with zero integrity in government and in sports and in entertainment, the, the hypocrisy is stunning. It is stunning. Even within the church, we've seen damage to the work of the gospel. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that integrity is, is one of the most missing uh, characteristics of our culture, even down to families and schools, that if we as believers are uncompromising in living for Christ, if, if we will stand for Christ, we will be so obvious that we'll be like what Jesus says in Galilee. We'll be like a city set on a hill that everybody sees. If we meld in and mush in and compromise and fit in, nobody's going to look at Christ. Nobody's going to want to look at Christ. But if we stand for the word and we're uncompromising in our values, not, not being jerks, not being judgmental, not pointing our fingers at people, but just walking by the word of God and showing the love of Christ and speaking the truth in love, if we will do that, people will notice us like a city on a dark hill. That's Jesus' word. And really, it's not that difficult to be a person of great integrity. Because the more fixed our convictions are biblically, and the more unwavering we are about standing firm for him, the more we'll be known for our integrity. Our reputation is not important for our social standing. Our reputation is not important for how many likes we have, how many friends we have, how far we'll get in business, how many people think we're cool, how many people know us. Our reputation is only important, listen now, for how it represents Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus looks at the Pharisees who by all accounts were religious, who did all the right things, said all the right things, dressed all the right ways, stood and acted all pious and pompous and led worship and led the people in understanding the word of God and, and acted all important walked around, look at us, that they looked every bit religious. 
And Jesus says, you are so full of pride and you are so full of self-righteousness. You are two-faced and being two-faced is actually worse than rejecting me outright because you're dishonoring me. You're acting like you know me, but you don't. And Jesus says, you can look at it later, Matthew 23. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. His point is, we can, pull, we, can, we can fool people with a false character. Because man looks on the outward appearance. But God only looks on the heart. And Titus 1 says, ultimately, our heart will be revealed by our actions. Either we will model and advance Christ, or we will profess to know him, but deny him by our works. Is it easy to live in integrity? Is it easy to live without compromise? No, but we have to fight for it. Because it's that important. Because once our reputation is unreliable and once our, our, our honesty is lacking, our witness will be damaged. Look at the last one quickly. Finally, we have to fight against compromising our maturation. We have to fight against compromising our convictions. We have to fight against compromising our integrity. And we have to fight against compromising our maturity. Now, we can define spiritual maturity in two ways. One is a strong, healthy, righteous spirit, and another one is a life that models Christ in every way. But maturity doesn't happen by proxy. Maturity doesn't happen by, by just hoping that it will. We really don't grow, even though there are parallels, we don't grow the same way spiritually as we do physically. Because when we're born, someone else takes care of us. And they're responsible for our feeding and our care until we get to the place where we can grab a Cheerio and cram it in our mouth and we can hold a bottle and we start to grow and we start to progress. But, but even as we grow and progress physically, our bodies and our minds naturally mature. Spiritually, it's different. The Spirit is given to us to convict us and teach us and lead us. But from the moment of salvation... We are transformed into a new life, and we are responsible to grow and mature in our faith. That's why somebody who's been saved for 20 years can still be immature, can still be bound to certain sins, can still be worldly in their thinking, can still be struggling to trust and to yield, can still be weak in their prayer life, can still barely be growing in the Lord, and still be hesitant to serve and hesitant to praise because they haven't done anything with what God's given them to grow and mature. Now, there is no way, there is no way Christ died to keep us in that position. That's why in Proverbs 4, look at it, we're about to pray. Look at it one more time. He says, watch, put away, look ahead, don't turn aside because if you do, your maturity will be stunted. And you don't want to be stunted. You want to grow and advance in the Lord. And when you love and submit to the Lord, which is the altar, and when you start to deny self and praise Him, which is worship, and when you trust Him and lay your life before Him, which is prayer, now as you do the altar and worship and prayer, now you're going to start to be uncompromising. And you're going to live by the word and you're going to love the Lord and you're going to trust the Lord and you're going to have the power of the spirit in your life and you're going to have a goal and a desire and a mission and a job and you're going to say, 
instead of putting on the old, I'm going to put on Christ and I'm going to make no provision. As Romans 13 says, I'm going to make no provision for the flesh. I'm not going to gratify its desires in any way because I am going to represent Christ. And I'm going to have less and less and less and less compromise every single day. I'm not going to make room for sin. I'm not going to give latitude to the devil. I'm not going to give him a foothold. He's going to try to destroy me. I'm going to resist him. I'm going to walk with Christ. And I'm going to follow his word. And I'm going to see God work in my life in an amazing way. That's what we're called to. Get the altar right. Start to worship the Lord. Start to call on his name. And when we get those things right, going to want to give in one inch. We're going to love the word and we're going to study the word and we're going to devour the word. And instead of spiritual compromise, there's going to be spiritually courageous commitment. That's what it means to live vertically. Stop living horizontally. Paul Rhodes. Paul Rhodes. Stop living horizontally. Start living vertically. Everything to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray.